you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and as you turn there, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the reminder this morning through Lou and George Ann's testimony that you truly are the God who saves. And I pray, Lord, that as we look at your word now by your spirit, we would be reminded of that and that our hearts would be full of delight and joy, that we would, as this passage says, glory in Christ Jesus. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. I wonder if I um, asked you, what is the greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ? I wonder how you might respond to that question. I think for a lot of Christians, we, we probably are prone to think that the greatest threat to the church are people who are outright against Jesus Christ, people who are in opposition to the things of Christianity. So, you know, we could probably think of individuals like group, individual groups like radical Islamic groups who are in the Middle East wreaking havoc upon Christians um, in those countries. Or we can think of people who are just outright in opposition to God in, in our culture, secular people who are atheistic in their thinking. They think everything about Christianity is inherently evil. And I think we're prone to think that these people are, are the greatest threat to the church. Now, when I say greatest threat, I, I simply mean, I don't mean that there's actually any real threat to the church. We know that Jesus Christ has said he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But that is that idea comes to our hearts and minds sometimes when we look at our world. And those those groups are definitely a threat, but I don't think they're the most common threat, nor, I, nor do I think they're the most serious threat to the church of Jesus Christ. I think that quite often the most common threat, the most prevalent threat to Christians are often those who identify as Christians in some form, yet twist the gospel twist, the scriptures. They, they claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, and yet they don't subscribe to everything that he prescribes for us. I think they are often the greatest threat, the most common threat, because it looks Christian, but it's not. And here in this passage in Philippians 3, Paul warns the believers in Philippi. He warns them of these, this group, and we're going to look into what that group was all about. But he warns them, but, but what he does is he actually gives them two commands, specifically here in Philippians 3, verses 1 to 3. We're just looking at verses 1 to 3 this morning, because this is a, a very thick passage. There's so much in it, so I, I, I'm going to break this passage down over the next few weeks. But this morning, Philippians 3, 1 to 3 Paul gives two commands. Rejoice and watch out. Rejoice and be aware. Rejoice, look out. So the first thing I want us to see is this. Rejoicing or joy in the Lord 
is our safety net, is our safety net. Look at Philippians 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now this word here that Paul uses for when he says finally, so he's, he's transitioning from chapter 2 to chapter 3, he says finally, that word really would be better translated as so then or well then. Uh, it's a transitional particle. Paul's making a transition in his thought process. So in, in light of what I've said in chapter 1 and chapter 2, rejoice in the Lord, my brothers. So what's he been talking about? Well, He's been unpacking for them, which we looked at last week, the, the two worthy examples in Timothy and Epaphroditus. He, he holds these two men as examples to follow. So he's saying, brothers, so then, in light of this, rejoice in the Lord. Now what I want you to see is how Paul uses this call to rejoice throughout his letter. This call to rejoice is, is almost like a hinge at the beginning or the end of sections in the letter of Philippians. It's almost like he uses this, this call to rejoice in the Lord or to rejoice um, as his framework. So look at chapter 1 verses 12 to 17. Paul here is talking about the advance of the gospel, right? He's imprisoned. In Rome, but the, the gospel's advancing, and, and he's rejoicing in the fact that the gospel's advancing, even though there's individuals who are opposing him, who are preaching Christ from wrong motivations. And in verse 18, he actually says, This I will rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So he, he ends verses 12 and 17 with this. This, yes, and I will rejoice. And then, from verses 19 to 26, he speaks of his own circumstance and how he wants to magnify Christ in his living and dying. There's a transition that takes place from 12 to 17. Verse 18 is that transition. And then, verses 19 to 26, he moves on to another subject. And then, when you jump down to chapter 2, verse 17 to 18... That is the end of his instruction on what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And what does he call them to do at the end of chapter 2, verse 17 and 18? He calls them to be glad and rejoice with him. And then he transitions into the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. So he's using this as his transition paradigm, so to speak. And then in 3, 1 to 11, he transitions again. He moves from Timothy and Epaphroditus, and now he begins to focus on these false teachers and specifically his own life as an example. And he begins this transition with this call to rejoice in the Lord. So he's using this theme of joy, this theme of rejoicing, as a framework for his letter. Paul commands them, he doesn't make this an option. He commands them to rejoice. And this is the first time he directly speaks to the object of their rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord. So Paul doesn't want them simply to be joy-filled. He's also concerned about the object of their rejoicing. Their rejoicing should flow from their delight in Christ. The ultimate reality 
that should dictate your joy is Jesus Christ. Is this true of your life right now? Would rejoicing in Christ, delighting in Christ, be what defines your life right now? The grounds for our joy aren't based in circumstances, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is so important because not only is it a command in the scriptures, but it's also for your safety. It's also for your safety as a Christian that your joy be in Christ. You're probably looking at me like, what are you talking about? How is rejoicing in Christ for my safety? Well, look at the remainder of verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. That is, Paul could be referring here to everything he's written up into the point of this letter. To write the same things to you. He's continually bringing up joy. Or it could be he's referring to the time when he was actually with them in Philippi. and he, he would have spoken to them about joy. And so he's saying to write the same things to you is no trouble for me. No trouble to me. It's not a burden for me. But then he says, and is safe for you. Safe for you. So Paul's making this connection that to remind you of these things, specifically rejoicing in the Lord, to have your joy in Christ, it's safe for you. Why is it safe? Why is it safe for them, for Paul to remind them to rejoice in Christ. Here's my answer. Paul knows that the greatest weapon, the greatest defense against sin and opposition is satisfying joy in Jesus Christ. Your greatest defense against sin in your life is joy in Jesus Christ. Paul understands the power of joy in the Christian life. As one, one commentator put it, joy in the Lord is a bulwark against all manner of dangers. We know Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord in us is our strength. Now this is a silly illustration, but I think it helps understand this. You think of a toy that brings a child joy. His joy in the object, in that toy, keeps his attention focused on the thing that he loves in such a way that other toys have no power in alluring him away from that one toy. And when he loses joy in that one toy, that's when other toys capture his attention. That's the picture when it comes to sin in our relationship to Jesus Christ, when we are delighting in Christ, when we are rejoicing in Christ, when our hearts are satisfied in Him, all the allurements of this world and sin don't have the power in our lives that they sometimes can when we lose our joy in Christ. You think of uh, King David, the story of King David and Bathsheba, the famous story where he was supposed to be out at war and he's on his rooftop and he sees Bathsheba bathing and he takes her and sleeps with her. She wasn't his, his wife. 
And then to cover up the fact that he slept with her, possibly even raped her, we're not totally sure. And he gets her pregnant, and to cover all that up, he then sends her husband out onto the front lines, and and he's murdered, he's killed. David, the man after God's own heart. And in Psalm 51, we have David's song of confession, where he pours out his heart to God about what he has done. He, He asks God to purify him of the sin that he's committed, and all these things. But there's one thing in particular that David asks that I think is profound. Because David's main problem wasn't his lust. It wasn't his sexual immorality. It wasn't the fact that he had Uriah murdered. David's main problem was that he lost his joy in God. David cries out, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Friends, every time we give in to sin, it's because we've lost our satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry says, The joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of the taste for those pleasures with which the tempter baits his hooks. This is why Paul can say, It's safe for them to remind them of rejoicing in Christ. The safest place to be in your Christian life is to have a heart full of rejoicing in Christ. You're vulnerable to sin when we lose our joy in Christ. So we see here that joy in the Lord is a safety net. It's a defense And we're called to find our joy in Christ daily. Secondly, Paul calls us to watch out for wolves. Watch out for wolves. Look at uh, verse 3, chapter 3, verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who who mutilate the flesh. Now from all indication, it would seem that Paul here is referring to the Judaizers. The Judaizers were were Jews who claimed to be Christians. They claimed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they also claimed that in order for a Gentile to become a follower of Jesus, they not only needed to embrace Jesus as the Messiah, but they also needed to become Jewish. They needed to submit to the Old Covenant under Moses, and specifically that of circumcision. So you can, you can follow Jesus, but, but in order for you to really be a part of the people of God and, and to be in the covenant, the new covenant, you also have to be circumcised. And this group, the Judaizers, were, were probably the primary group that Paul constantly had to deal with. Wherever Paul goes on his missionary journey, these individuals seem to show up. And you can see by Paul's words that he's not very gracious with this group. Now, we don't know what sparked this statement by Paul, whether or not the believers in Philippi were were specifically dealing with this group at this time. We're not totally sure. But this group always is attempting to destroy Paul's ministry efforts. Now, this verse here is really defined by searing rhetoric ironic sarcasm with when he writes about these this group of Judaizers. I mean the first thing he calls them is, is dogs. Look out for those dogs. Now 
In our culture, we tend to think of dogs as cute and adorable animals. We take them as our house pets. But in the ancient world, people didn't have dogs as house pets. Dogs were like coyote-like scavengers who fed on roadkill, filth, and garbage. Dogs were a vivid image for the Jews of what it meant to be unclean. And so the Jews would often refer to the Gentiles as dogs because they were considered unclean according to Jewish laws. And so for Paul to call these Judaizers dogs, he's going really low. He, he, he's, he's messing with them. You're like the unclean pagan Gentile world, you Judaizers who think you are righteous. Your dogs, whereas these Gentiles who have come to faith in Jesus Christ and have not been circumcised, they're clean and pure before God. Second, he, he calls them evil doers. Now, this group believes themselves to be upholders of righteousness. They're Judaizers. They, they claim to be workers of the law. Law workers. And Paul's saying, rather than being workers of the law, you're actually evil workers. And I want you to see this. Paul doesn't see this group as misguided or ignorant. He sees them as evil workers. Why? Because they've twisted the gospel. They've added to the gospel. Yes, Jesus Christ died for your sins, but you also need to be circumcised in order to have your sins truly forgiven. They've undermined the gospel. And Paul will not have any of it. This is why Paul doesn't hold back in referring to them as workers as of evil. In Galatians chapter 1, 8-9, the Judaizers show up again, and what Paul writes is startling. He says this, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul does not have grace for people who intentionally take the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins, rose from the dead, and twist it. He has no grace for people who intentionally twist the gospel to deceive people and lead them astray. Thirdly, he calls them those who mutilate the flesh. Who mutilate the flesh. Now, of course, Paul is sarcastically mocking their practice of circumcision. Now, hear this. Paul's not condemning circumcision. Paul was circumcised. He was circumcised on the eighth day. What he's condemning is their confidence in their circumcision. They're boasting in their circumcision and demanding that Gentiles should also have to be circumcised in order to be considered a part of the covenant community of God, in order to be considered right with God. See, their greatest source of pride was circumcision, because they think it identifies them as the people of God, that they have God's favor because they were simply circumcised. And Paul's saying, because of that, it's nothing more than self-mutilation. 
Now, Paul describes this group, but his goal is to warn the Christians in Philippi. Look out. Look out for this group. They will come into your ranks and they will try to deceive you. They will try to demand you to do things that would undermine the gospel that saved you. Now, we don't have Judaizers living today who are trying to get into our churches. But the same spirit is still at work today, even in the church. There are people who take God's word, they take his gospel, they either take from it or they add to it. They twist the scriptures in order to relate to the culture. So friends, we have the same Look out for us today as well. We need to be on the lookout. We need to be warned. We need to be aware. We need to know God's word so that we can actually look out for those who would seek to lead God's people astray. So on the one hand, he wants to warn them. But on the other hand, he wants to remind these believers in Philippi of who they are. Part of being able to respond to false teachers is knowing who you are in Christ Jesus. In contrast to these Judaizers, so that they're not duped by them. Paul's wanting to to remind them of who they are so they're they're not duped by these Judaizers. And this is what takes us to verse 3 of chapter 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in. In the flesh. Paul states three things, four things, but three things about these believers in Philippi which are true of all followers of Jesus. First, he calls them the circumcision, for we are the circumcision. What's significant about circumcision? Well, circumcision was, was the sign under the old covenant that made you a part of the covenant people of God, Israel. So a child who was born in Israel would would be circumcised on the eighth day and it would be the identity marker that would declare to them that he is a part or he is a part of the covenant community. Now these Judaizers who think they're the people of God because of their physical circumcision, Paul's response is no, The Gentiles who have been saved by Jesus Christ, they're the true circumcision. They're the true people of God. Paul calls these Gentile Christians the circumcision. And the irony of that is that none of them were actually physically circumcised, most likely. Gentiles didn't practice circumcision. But Paul can call them the circumcised because Paul understands that physical circumcision was simply a sign pointing to a deeper reality, the circumcision of the heart. And it's not just the New Testament that speaks to this. The Old Testament, from as early as Deuteronomy, points to the fact that Israel needed more than physical circumcision. They needed heart circumcision. They needed their sinful hearts changed. So in Deuteronomy 6, 
Uh, Moses is speaking to the people of Israel. They're, they're on the edge of the promised land. They're about to enter the promised land. And he's actually speaking about the future when they will all abandon God. And because of that, God's going to judge his people. He's going to scatter them across the nations. And then he's going to bring them back. And he says this about circumcision. And the Lord God, the Lord your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So God promises Israel that one day he's going to circumcise their hearts so that they will walk in obedience to him. So already in Deuteronomy, one of the earliest books that we have in the scriptures, the circumcision of the heart is already being taught and the Judaizers missed it. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah 9, 25 to 26, uh, Jeremiah is speaking about judgment from God. And this is what he says. Listen to these words. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Did you hear that? God is going to punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert land who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. So God already warns Israel in the Old Testament, your physical circumcision is not enough. It doesn't make you right with God. You need the circumcision of the heart. Now, what is the circumcision of the heart? The circumcision of the heart is ultimately what is brought to us in the new covenant, where God takes our hearts of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. It's the promise of the new covenant where the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us, to regenerate us, to experience the new birth so that we might walk in God's ways. Jeremiah 31, 31, 31 to 33 is the prophecy about this new covenant. He says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Or Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. So when Paul says we are the circumcision, this is what he means. We're the recipients of the new covenant in which the Holy Spirit has come to dwell within us. He has circumcised our hearts. We're the circumcision, the people of God. And listen, you cannot be a Christian if you haven't experienced the circumcision of the heart. It doesn't matter if you were baptized as an infant, it doesn't matter if you grew up in the church, it doesn't matter if your parents are Christians. None of that saves you. 
None of that makes you a child of God. You must be given a new heart by the Holy Spirit. Salvation is a work of God where he takes a sinner who is dead in sin and he breathes life into him and causes him to rise that he might walk in his ways. So we are the circumcision. Secondly, Paul says we are those who worship by the Spirit of God. So here Paul speaks to what we do as the circumcised and the means by which we do it. We are those who worship. We are those who worship. That's what we do. And the means by the Spirit of God. Now this word worship It doesn't merely mean singing. Paul's using a broad word that for the Christian encapsulates all of life under the category of worship. Worship is a life that is oriented towards bringing glory to Jesus Christ in all things. It's adoring, praising, delighting, treasuring. It is complete devotion to Jesus Christ. And this worship that Paul speaks of here, that is to define the people of God, can only happen by the Spirit of God at work in us. All true worship of God can only happen by this power of the Spirit working in our hearts to worship Him in a manner that is worthy of Him. All worship, true worship, comes by the power of God's Spirit. Which means that you can participate in all forms of worship and never actually worship. You can come here on a Sunday morning and sing, confess your sins, listen to God's word, and never actually worship. Because worship can only be done by those who have the Spirit of God dwelling within them. Now, Paul is saying that these Judaizers, they think they're the true worshipers of God, but they got it wrong. They haven't experienced the circumcision of the heart, and therefore they can't be worshipers of God because they don't have the Holy Spirit. But you do, Christian. You're able to worship God because of the Spirit of God dwelling within you. So we're we're the circumcision where those who worship by the Spirit of God, our lives are to be defined by worship of God. We do not worship self, we worship God. Thirdly, which is tied to worship, we're those who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Because we're those who worship by the Spirit of God, it it, it makes sense that we're also those who glory in Christ Jesus. Because what is the role of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit's primary task is to draw people's attention to the glory and wonder of Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying what it means to be the circumcised, to be the people of God, is that we glory in Jesus Christ. Literally, he's saying, we boast in Jesus Christ. He is our glory. He is our pride. This is what it fundamentally means to be a Christian. Our lives are consumed with glorying in Christ Jesus. Christ 
is the divine obsession of our lives. He's the obsession of every son or daughter who worship by the Spirit of God. Which means, if you want to know whether or not you're actually a Christian, you simply need to ask yourself this. Do you truly glory in Jesus Christ? Do you boast in Jesus Christ? Is your life consumed with Jesus Christ? Is your heart all enthralled with Jesus Christ? Now, Paul contrasts here boasting in Christ with putting confidence in the flesh. Right? We are those who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, Paul's saying that if you're putting confidence in the flesh, you're not glorying in Christ Jesus. But if you're glorying in Christ Jesus, you're not putting confidence in the flesh. But we need to ask simply this, what does Paul mean by putting confidence in the flesh? Well, when Paul uses the word flesh, he's not referring to our bodies. He's not saying your, your body's bad. No, he's not saying you're putting confidence in your body, though, though some of us can do that sinfully. But Paul uses the word flesh here, really, he's, he's contrasting two ways of life, two realms, so to speak. There's, there's the realm of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. There's the, the realm of, of living in the Spirit, walking in God's ways. And there's the realm of living in the flesh. Living in the flesh is the, the way of sinful humanity in this fallen world. And here... In this passage, Paul's contrasting these believers with the Judaizers. We, as Christians, boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, whereas the Judaizers, they put their confidence in their flesh. That is, ultimately, they put their confidence in self. In self. We boast in Christ, they boast in self. You see, they thought they were right with God simply because of their ethnicity, their heritage, simply because they were Jewish. And, and in their observance of Torah, the Old Testament, and, and particularly that of circumcision, they thought that those things were necessary to become a child of God, to be saved by God. But listen, confidence in the flesh isn't an ancient phenomenon. It's just as common today as in Paul's day. It, it just manifests itself different. Any time a person depends on who they are or what they do as the grounds for being accepted by God, they are putting confidence in the flesh. They are boasting in their flesh. I've had conversations with, with people who have claimed to be Christians, and, and I've asked them, you know, what, what makes you right with God? And they'll, and they'll say, well, I was baptized as an infant. That's confidence in the flesh. Where does your confidence reside this morning? Where does your boast reside this morning? Do you have confidence before God because you've been raised in a Christian home? Friend, that won't help you. Or maybe your confidence rests in the fact that you were baptized, maybe even as an infant or as an adult. 
Or maybe, you know, you think, oh, I go to church every so often. I, you know, I, I try to be a good person. Friend, that won't help you before a holy God. The Bible makes clear we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is nothing that you can do before a good and holy God to save yourself. The only hope that any human being has in being made right with God is Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul writes, as Christians, we glory in Christ Jesus. We boast in Christ Jesus. Our confidence rests upon Jesus. See, the first step in becoming a Christian is realizing there's nothing you can do within yourself to be accepted by God. Confidence in self will only condemn you before a holy God. To be a Christian is to abandon self and embrace Christ and to cry out, you're my glory, you're my boast, you're my hope. My hope is in you, Jesus. Why? Because Jesus Christ has done everything necessary for you and I to be made right with God. He died for our sins. He came into this world as the sinless Son of God and paid the penalty for our sins. We were condemned before God, but Christ took our condemnation for us. And the scriptures tell us that if we turn from our sins, turn from self, and embrace and trust in Jesus, we can have our sins forgiven completely. And we will be made right with God. We will, as the scriptures tell us, go from enemies of God to children of God. And this is why Paul, when writing about these Christians, says, we're the circumcised. We're the circumcised who boast in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Because Christ has died for our sins and we have embraced him in faith. Have you abandoned self and embraced Jesus? You can't save yourself. You're guilty before a holy God because of your sin, but Christ has taken the sin of humanity upon himself. Will you not embrace the sin forgiver and the sin deliverer? Will you boast in Jesus Christ? alone. Church, this is who we are. We are the circumcised who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And we must remember who we are because there are so many things and many people in this world that will seek to lure you away from glorying in Jesus Christ. And may that never be true of any of us. Let's pray. Father, I pray for anyone that's here this morning that still hasn't truly bowed the knee to Jesus. I pray that by your spirit, Lord, you would, you would intervene in their life. You would remove that heart of stone, that heart of stubbornness, that heart of rebellion, and replace it with a heart of flesh. Have mercy this morning. And Lord, for those of us who know you, 
May we walk in the truth that we have heard this morning. May we glory in Christ all the more. May we be defined by, by worship. And may we never put confidence in self. We pray this for Christ's name. Amen.